I want to thank Chris and Ryan and Jonathan for taping all those little uh, beginnings and also uh, Dean Davis and Kent Rhodes for the good job they did filming and editing that. They're fun guys to work with. Well, Jeff Foxworthy uh, started a national phenomenon a few years ago with these uh, observations called, You Might Be a Redneck If. There are hundreds of them. Some of my favorites include, You Might Be a Redneck If Your Wife Has Ever Said, uh, Come Move This Transmission So I Can Take a Bath. (laughs) Or You Might Be a Redneck If Your Mother Has Ammo on Her Christmas List. Or if you've ever been involved in a custody fight over a hunting dog, you might be a redneck if you've ever financed a tattoo. Or if your lifetime goal is to own a fireworks stand. You might be a redneck if your dad walks you to school every day because you're in the same grade. Or if you have refused to watch the Academy Awards show ever since they snubbed Smokey and the Bandit for Best Picture. Or if you've ever made change in the offering plate. Or if in tough situations you ask, what would Curly do? You'll have to tell your kids what that means. Or if you think the last words to the Star Spangled Banner are, gentlemen, start your engines. Well, the reason those observations are humorous is because we often recognize just a little bit of ourselves in them. And I believe that's why Jesus was perhaps the most brilliant storyteller ever. The genius of his stories is that even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, we recognize a little bit of ourselves in his characters. And so I, at times, recognize a little bit of myself in that priest or Levite who doesn't want to stop where I'm going to help somebody else. I recognize a little bit of myself sometimes in that guy who's so busy thinking about his next barn, he doesn't stop to think about who he could help with all the surplus. I recognize a little bit of myself in that guy who didn't notice that right there at his gate was somebody he could show God's love to. This is the genius of Jesus. And he does it again in the last story we're going to look at in this series. I title it, You Might Be a Pharisee If. And we read it in Luke 18. Now please notice the very first word, because it's important. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed aloud about himself. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles 
himself will be exalted. Now, most of Jesus' stories took place in everyday life situations. To my knowledge, this is the only story he told that took place in a place of worship. And as he usually does, Jesus includes something that's good, something that's bad, and something that's ugly. Now, I need you to think today. Because we're going we're gonna to add a twist to this story you've probably never heard before, but I think is legitimate. I want you for a moment to realize there was something very good about this Pharisee. Something we can relate to. You see, it was good for him to remember God's work in his life. Pharisees tend to get a bad rap. Through centuries of Christian preaching today, when we hear the word Pharisee, we hear a negative word. We use the word Pharisee as an insult. But that's not what Jesus' original hearers assumed. We hear Pharisee, we hear villain. But when Jesus told this story, and the people heard it for the first time, and they heard Pharisee and tax collector, they didn't assume the Pharisee would wind up looking like the bad guy. Because for the general public, Pharisees were, for the most part, admired people. Most people looked up to them, or at least put up with them, because these guys were serious about devoting their lives to following God. Now, maybe you didn't want to be a Pharisee, but there was something inside you that had a begrudging respect for guys that did, who really wanted to sell out in pursuit of the will of God. If you knew this guy, you might not want him for your best friend, but you would at least, at some level, admire him. Because we tend to admire people that take holiness seriously, particularly people that excel in areas where we struggle. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you two areas where my flesh struggles the most are giving and fasting. And that's exactly where he excels. He is an extremely generous man. And he is very zealous about fasting. Most of us, our flesh won't even fast one day a year. And this guy will fast two days a week. If this guy visited most churches today, we would ask him to disciple young men. And by the way, most of all, notice... He gives God credit for his spiritual success. His prayer is totally theocentric. Look at the first four words. God, I thank you. Now, he's correct in discerning that his growth in righteousness is a gift from God. And I think that's a good thing. To thank God for your progression in areas of righteousness. And by the way, we've all done it. Before you sneer at this man, you realize you've prayed his prayer. Maybe not the exact words. But you have seen somebody at a place in life that you didn't want to be. And you have thought to yourself, God, I thank you I'm not him. I thank you I'm not there. I thank you, God, that you took me from where I used to be and you've put me where I am now. God, I am thankful. I am thankful that I'm not the kind of person... 
I see sometimes in other places. We've all done that. And it's right to thank God that you are more than you could have been. Alex Haley, the famous author of the book Roots, has in his study a picture of a turtle on a fence post. And he says the reason is because if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had some help. And so when people tell me what a great man I am and what a great author I am, I know I've had some help. The Bible says in Philippians 2 verse 13, For it's God working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. I think it's good to remember that to thank God for your capacity to pursue a more righteous life. And by the way, God's grace should never be used as an excuse for accepting spiritual mediocrity. You want to grow in your giving. You want to grow in your fasting. You want to grow in your witnessing. You want to grow in your prayer life, don't you? Because if you don't, you don't understand grace yet. And when we see where we used to be, and we see what we are becoming, it is good, it is correct to thank God. God for that. But it's possible to be correct and still be wrong. See, it was good to remember God's work in his life, but it was bad to remember his righteousness by comparing. Now, let me tell you something. Nobody starts going to church with the goal of becoming a hypocrite. Now, it happens. But that's not why anybody starts. What happens is that God lifts us up from who we used to be. And from that place, instead of it being a loft by which we can keep looking up to God, it becomes a perch where we start looking down on other people. God, I thank you. Well, that's... So far, so good. But then he had to say that I'm not like other men. And by the way, in the temple, you prayed out loud. That tax collector heard his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And it made me wonder this week, what are some of the ways that people in the world hear us talk about our righteousness? It's a good question to ponder. Boy, I tell you one thing, I'm sure glad I don't listen to that kind of music anymore. You'd never catch me wearing that. I wonder how we make sure people hear how much we've grown in righteousness. See, here's the problem. Nobody goes to church with the goal to become a hypocrite. But without even realizing it, sometimes we go varsity. And we find ways to communicate, I'm glad I made the first team. When are you going to get there? 
See, what he forgot was that it was God's righteousness he should be comparing himself to, not another man's. Some years ago, my family and I went uh, skiing in Rio Dosa, New Mexico. And along the way, we were just about to enter this small little town in New Mexico, close to the mountains. And there was this big field with a lot of sheep out in it. And the ground was dark and dirty and dingy and there wasn't much grass. And those white sheep against that dark brown background looked pretty brilliant. I just for some reason remembered having a mental picture of how white those sheep looked in that field. Well, we went and skied two or three days. While we were there, a big snowstorm came through and dumped a lot of snow in New Mexico. So we're going home that same road, and we drive past that same field. I look out there, and there's all those sheep, and this time the entire pasture is covered in inches of snow. Brilliant, white, just fallen snow. And those sheep looked filthy. Their wool looked dingy and dirty and brown compared to the brilliant white as a backdrop and I felt like I heard just God speak to my heart there Rick this is what my children do they find the wrong background to compare themselves to the Bible says in Romans 3 23 everyone has sinned we all Fall short of God's glorious standard. See, only as we see God as who He is are we ever going to be able to see ourselves as who we really are. And if we don't, it gets ugly. And it was ugly for this guy to forget. He needed mercy as much as anyone else. Here's the thing about going to church and leading prayer. It can be a great place to avoid dealing with God. And through prayer, this Pharisee was able to do an incredibly ugly thing. Make himself the standard for righteousness. And again, we've all done it. We do it when we don't even realize we're doing it. It's not our goal to be hypocrites. But we're thankful for something God's working in our lives. We're happy we're at a place we didn't used to be at. And before you know it, we've become the standard. And why can't the rest of those JV guys start playing ball on my team? You know I like to play golf. And I'm often asked this question, Rick, are you a good golfer? It depends on the standard. If the standard is compared to the guy with a set of clubs in his attic that he gets down one time a year, I'm a good golfer. If the standard is par, I'm not very good at all. And the truth is, if God is the standard for righteousness, then neither one of these guys has any hope of breaking par. Here's the problem. Now, I told you I'm going to need you to think this morning. So before I start this next point, I want you to elbow the person you're sitting by and tell them to wake up and put on their thinking cap. Do that right now, please. If you get the next 
two minutes. If you get the next two minutes, it'll bless you the rest of your life. Here you go. Here's a problem. Like the Pharisee, we sometimes begin to think our sanctification is the grounds for our justification. Now, those are two big preacher words. What is justification? It's that moment when you are made right with God, where you're able to stand in the presence of God and not be afraid because you're not seen as a sinner. And this is what God gifts us through Jesus Christ by the power of his blood. We are made just by Christ. But now what happens? The Holy Spirit comes into our life and we begin to change because God starts doing a work in us. We start saying no to sin. We start saying yes to Godness. We start reading our Bible more. We start going to church. We start praying. We might even fast now and then. And it feels pretty good. And the next thing you know, we start thinking our sanctification is what made us right with God. It's like we're in a boat. And we need to get across a lake. And there's no way. But then we get the motor called grace. And that motor can take us across that lake. And so we start out across the lake powered by grace. And then lo and behold, somewhere in the middle of that lake, we see, hey, there are oars in this boat. And we turn the motor off and we get those oars out and we start rowing. It feels pretty good and we're making some progress. And before we know it, we start thinking that the reason we got across the lake is because we row so well. Now, we still got the motor in case we need it. That's a good thing about grace. In case you need it, it's there. But boy, do you see how well I'm rowing? And I wonder why those other people aren't rowing as hard as I am. And without even knowing it, we've become arrogant and judgmental and offensive to the very people we would like to help meet God. You see, that tax collector may have been a bigger sinner, but he was a better theologian. Because he placed all of his hope for justification on the mercy of God. That word he uses for mercy is consistently in the New Testament uh, translated atonement. Where God does something to make you right. In fact, it's only found here as a verb and one other place in the Bible as a verb. Hebrews 2.17 for this reason, he had to make made like his brothers in every way in order that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make mercy, make atonement for the sins of the people. That guy understood, God, my only hope to ever stand in your presence and not tremble is mercy. I got nothing to impress you with. If you're the standard, I will never break par. I think it is so significant that right after this story, some kids start hanging out with Jesus and the disciples get upset and tell them to get away. 
And it makes Jesus angry because they didn't learn the story. And so he says in verse 17, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, how does a little child receive anything? you got a brand new baby and he's hungry. What's his only plan? Cry and hope. And Jesus says that's the only way to receive the kingdom. You've heard of uh, the Colgate business empire founded by Samuel Colgate, a devout Christian. He tells a story that one time his church was having a revival, an evangelistic outreach. And at the end of the message, there was an appeal to accept Christ. And a woman came forward that everyone in the church knew was a rather well-known prostitute in their town. She came forward and she knelt before the altar weeping, confessing sin and asking to receive Christ. And he says everybody in the church was nodding their head. Yes, this is a good thing. Yes, yes, yes. And then she stood up and gave her testimony that she felt like she had received Christ and been forgiven of her sins. And she expressed a desire to place membership at that church. And everybody stopped nodding. There was total silence. Samuel Colgate stood up and he said this. I guess we blundered when we prayed the Lord would save sinners. We forgot to specify what kind of sinners. We'd better ask him to forgive us for this oversight. The Holy Spirit has touched this woman and made her truly repentant. But the Lord apparently doesn't understand. She's not the type we want him to rescue. We'd better spell it out for him. Just which sinners we had in mind. And to their credit, the church repented and unanimously received the woman. Jesus is saying, there's only one kind of sinner, desperate, hopeless, in need of mercy. And go back to that very first word. It does not start about those who were confident in their righteousness. It says, to those who were confident in their righteousness. Jesus didn't tell this story about Pharisees. He told it to their face. I suspect some of them got convicted. I suspect most of them got angry. And left very offended. How are we going to leave today? It probably depends on how willing we are to address the Pharisee that lives in me. The brilliance of Jesus. He can tell a story. And if you will drop the defenses and get honest, you can see a little bit of yourself in it. You see, you might be a Pharisee. If you like it 
when other people view you as deeply religious. You might be a Pharisee. If you go to church to feel good about yourself, you might be a Pharisee. If you need to get noticed and thanked for your service and ministry, you might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee if you're regularly comparing yourself to other people. Or if you're quick to dismiss others for not measuring up. And maybe most clear of all, if you've never prayed the tax collector's prayer, if you've rode too far on your own to own that prayer, then you might be a Pharisee. Pharisee-itis is very contagious. And by the way, beware of reverse self-righteousness. Because if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not a hypocrite. You missed the point. <laughs> if you're going to pray, well, God, I thank thee that I'm not a Pharisee, you missed the point. The story is calling us to stop putting down others and start bending down ourselves. Jesus says, here's the only thing that you need to get from this story. Stop exalting yourself and start humbling yourself. This theme is all through the Bible. Humble yourself. James 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll lift you up. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The Bible doesn't counsel praising humility or even feeling humble. The Bible says you need to intentionally, deliberately do things that will humble you. It's your responsibility. And if you don't, God will. Look at these words from Jesus, the last words. They're not just a pithy little principle, people. They're a warning from the Lord. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the question of the day. This is what I want you to think about this week. Who is going to humble you? Will it be you or will it be God? The Old Testament has this story about a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Very powerful, very prolific statesman and builder. On his balcony one night looking out of his kingdom, pretty impressed with himself. And God said, that's enough. That's enough. 
And after a few years eating grass like an animal, he came to his senses. And this is what man said in Daniel 4.37. Those who walk in pride, he, the Lord God, is able to humble. God will not let you go through life exalting yourself. The Bible says he opposes the proud. That word literally means he lines up his armies. You know, sometimes people, I think, confuse God's discipline for spiritual warfare. Oh, the devil's really after you, brother. It just seems like he's just coming after you with all kinds of spiritual warfare, maybe. Or maybe God has had enough. And God is humbling you. He opposes the proud. So combat your pride. How do you do that? All kinds of ways. Teddy Roosevelt used to enjoy going to his retreat at Sagamore Hill and having conversations late into the evening with some of the brightest people in the world and they'd talk about deep things. But then he would take a friend and he would go out into the yard before bedtime and he'd point up to the sky and say, you see that collection of stars? That's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It's got over a hundred billion stars in it, each one bigger than our sun. And then he would smile and he would say, I think we're small enough now. We can go to bed. How do you humble yourself? Maybe you need to regularly take a walk in God's creation and just look at what he did. Maybe you need to make a phone call this week. I don't care who started it. I don't care whose fault it is. It's time for it to be over. Humble yourself and make some peace. Maybe it's time to stop fighting that sin in private and in quiet. And you go find a brother or sister of spiritual maturity and say, this is my struggle. Would you walk with me? Would that be kind of embarrassing? Yes! You would have to humble yourself to do that. Maybe it means you share your faith. Maybe it means you tell the guys at work, I'm not listening to that kind of humor anymore. But who is going to humble you? Because we're all going down. It's just a question of how. And every knee is going to bow. It's just a question of when. You know, in the Bible, one of the ways the people of God humbled themselves was by physically taking their body and laying it out before the Lord. They would either go prostrate or they would kneel. To physically say to God, you're the standard, and I need mercy. And so, I'd like us to sing a song we haven't sung in a while together. But if you are able, if you are physically able, I'd like you to join me and let's sing it on our knees.
Take a moment. Pray the tax collector's prayer. It's your prayer. You need to own it. Take a moment and pray it. God, may we only lift up Jesus because it is only because of His mercy that we can stand. May it all be for His glory and His honor forever and ever. Amen. Now let's all stand. We'll sing one more song. And while we sing this song, I'm going to invite you, if you have never done this, to be baptized. I think one of the reasons Jesus commanded baptism as the initiation into discipleship is it is a rather humiliating thing. To say there's nothing about your old life God's impressed with, so just bury it. In front of a whole bunch of people, go underwater and come back up as a visible, tangible expression. That God has got to do a new thing in you. If you haven't done that. We're going to give you a chance to come and do it right now. While we sing this song.